Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hi friends, it is now spring. It was the first day of meteorological spring on the 1st of March and here in the UK we have been having some pretty nice sunshine actually and I can feel the warmth of the sun so it's put me in an all-round good mood and I hope wherever you are in the world listening you've been getting a nice bit of sunshine too. Today I have a power-packed episode for you. I'm so excited with today's guest. It is Dr. Kate Shanahan. She is the leading authority on nutrition and human metabolism. She's a board-certified family physician with over 20 years of clinical experience and New York Times best-selling author of The Fat Burn Fix, Deep Nutrition and Food Rules. And Dr. Kate's expertise is fixing the underlying problems that cause metabolic damage and inflammation, leading to autoimmunity, weight gain, diabetes, cancer, and accelerated aging processes. And her passion is helping people feel their best. She's also the doctor to many professional athletes, including the um, LA Lakers. And she shares so much of her knowledge and work on her website with lots of um, recipes and research. And her books are transformational. Her first book, Deep Nutrition, actually really inspired me on how to feed my growing family. Um, I learned so much in that book about the importance of things like bone broth and organ meats and healthy fats for growing children and how these foods can affect not just their gut health, but also their their um, their jaw structure and their teeth alignment. So really eye-opening book. I highly recommend it. Now, Dr. Kate shares a wealth of information in this interview, so don't feel that you have to be taking notes. If you want to download the transcript or even listen with transcript, you can do that over on my website, angelafosterperformance.com forward slash podcasts. I link to everything there, the show notes and also the transcript. Um, so as I say, you can go and access all of the information there. Um, I know you're going to love this episode. I think her books are absolutely brilliant. And so I'm really, really excited to introduce you to Dr. Kate. So let's do that now. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Kate Shanahan, who is a family medical doctor who wants to really change the conversation about what a healthy diet is. Um, I'm really excited to speak to you today, Dr. Kate. It's amazing to have you here. So first of all, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show, an opportunity to meet your audience way over the ocean over there. Yeah, way over the ocean. Um, So let's, I've got two, you've obviously got two incredible books, both of which I really want to touch on, and I know they are a little bit different. So in terms of obviously the Fat Burn Fix is your most recent book, um, Deep Nutrition, I just found so informative and really, really taught me how not just to feed myself, but to feed my growing children as well. Um, So why don't we start by just talking about the approach and the difference between the two books and really what they're both seeking to achieve. Right. So with Deep Nutrition, which is the book that I wrote before I wrote The Fat Burn Fix, um, the what I wanted to do with that was um, create a starting point for a healthy human diet because everybody has like their different preferences and some people have food intolerances and they can't eat everything. We talk about an individual diet and Um, I feel though that there is so much that we all have and need in common that it's very important to start the conversation with that actually, 
so that we can, um, you know, start what are, you know, so, so we're not like just grasping at straws, you know, and, and we end up when we don't start with what are the common elements that everybody had done in the past. That's what the question deep nutrition answers is. What is, what did everybody used to do before we had all these chronic diseases? What did everybody used to do before there were all these different diet gurus really telling people that they have the solution, right? How did people just live and survive when life was a lot tougher? That's really, um, you know, a testament to how uh, a good a diet is, is were people able on that diet to live into their eighties, if they were lucky to survive, you know, the, the accidents and lucky to survive the infections that we now have ways of preventing. Um, but were they able to live into their eighties and be functional, right? That's not the case now. So whatever we're doing now is very wrong because very few people can live into their eighties and be functional, independent. Um, and, and how about across generations? Because, um, at, when I was living in Hawaii, I, I, it became clear to me that there was a dramatic drop off in health that was happening, playing out right before our eyes. Because in Hawaii, I had uh, a lot of folks who were in their 60s and 70s who were functional, even in their 80s, who were functional, they were raising pigs and raising chickens and, um, you know, super active people, totally mentally with it, not on any medications. Um, and they're, Children and grandchildren, however, were not so lucky. And um, so what was it that people used to do? So I, I had become convinced by my experience and by reading some very um, important works, including the work of Weston A. Price, um, who probably you've introduced to your um, audience before. Mm. Um, yeah, so I so I had become convinced that whatever we were doing in the past was way better than what we were doing now. And so with Deep Nutrition, my husband and I wrote that one together and we we asked the question, so what do what can we learn from the past? Like how can we decide what we should be doing? And we said the answer to that question was, well, if there's some element of all culinary traditions that every human being on earth did that every culinary tradition still maintains, that's probably really important. That's probably really key, especially if it ties to a strategy that people could have done. Like, um, you know, I'm talking about people would, had to live off their environments, right? Now we can order from Amazon and we can just get anything from anywhere, any time of the year. Um, but before people had to be in very close touch with their environment. So they had to be very well aware as my different animals in the background here, speaking of the environment, um, uh, they had to be like very adept at getting nutrition from their environment. And so we looked at what did people all around the world do in common. And, and, the, and we found the four, that there were four things that they did. And we called that the four pillars of the human diet. Um, and that became like the foundation of what did people everywhere do, the starting point, right? So if you can do these four things, that is the basic foundation. And what those four, do you want me to just list out what those four things were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's put them in so people can take them away or note them down. Right. And, and, more, and maybe start thinking, does that even make sense, right? So, mm. um, so people ate fresh food. So whether we're talking plant or animal, they ate it when it was seasonal and unprocessed in any way, really um, not meaning not cooked, right? So there's a lot of um, raw 
animal products, actually, in uh, traditional cuisine, you'll see things like sushi or steak tartare or something where the meat has been tenderized, but um, really hasn't been heated because heat destroys nutrition. And of course, with, you know, plants, we still do that, like fresh salad and fresh fruit and stuff like that. Um, but the fresh stuff that people could get from their environment in season, that was something that was part of every tradition. So we wanted to, to bring that up to try to mimic that as much as we possibly could. So that's the first pillar. The second is um, we call it fermented and sprouted because what's happening is that if you have too much of something, say you live on a river and you catch like a hundred fish for your, uh, your family, um, you got to preserve those things. You got to know how to do that. And fermentation was the, the go-to method before we had canning, refrigeration, freezing. They would do all kinds of stuff. You would wrap it in rice. And that is the precursor to sushi was fish that was preserved just by wrapping, packing it in rice. And a certain kind of favorable fermentation would allow that fish to, um, to stay good so that it didn't, it didn't like rot in a bad way. Basically it rotted in a good way. It's like controlling the rotting process is really what fermentation is. It's not very appetizing sounding, but cheese is uh, cheese and wine, right? They're fermentation processes that we've refined to the point where they're delicious. And sprouting is just taking stuff where nature is now preserving it. Nature preserves seeds for a long time before they sprout. So nature's really good at preserving seeds, but it's so good that it's hard to get nutrition out of that just by smashing it or boiling it. And what people used to do is they would actually work with nature by allowing it to germinate. So um, the part, the process of germination wakes up the seed and it's getting ready to become a new little plant. So they sprouted pretty much everything. If they were making, um, you know, wheat into some kind of bread or beer bread, they would allow the seeds to germinate a little bit and soften. And that enhances the nutrition. Um, so that's the second one. And the third one is meat on the bone. So this is definitely a case of people used the animal products that were available to them in their environment. That Why not? It was you know, a matter of survival, they had to. And when they got, when they caught an animal, they, whether it was a fish or a bird or a deer, they would um, certainly use the skin, the fat and the bone. So that's meat on the bone refers to just using um, everything that helps, that um, helps get the most nutrition out of a uh, the animal product. Um, and then I separated out uh, the fourth pillar uh, being organ meats because they're so different. Their nutritional profile is so different than the muscle meat. Um, so the nutritional profile of like liver has so much more B vitamins, for example, even has vitamin D and vitamin A that muscle meat doesn't have. Uh, but people used to eat every single part of the animal because they, they could, right. Because we had, and we had to, in order to make the most of the nutrition that was available to us in our environment, it doesn't make sense to eat just the, the, the muscle meat, right. Because mm. there's that animal's um, 
bodies, just like our bodies, we have different nutritional profiles in every single organ. So if you think of all the nutrition that um, a living animal might have in its body as a rainbow, the muscle meat gives you like the color blue, <laughs> but all the other organs have all these other colors. And my husband just ordered a book, um, Escoffier's like original uh, French cookbook from like 1923 or something like that. And it's just another, yet another perfect example. There's, we just randomly opened to a page and it was like um, something about uh, uh, calf brain and um, some certain kind of a sauce or something like this. So these were like considered delicacies and, um, and of course, people would just get so much more nutrition by, by this approach than the approach that we take currently. So, the, so I'm contrasting now, I'm going to step away from the four pillars and what people used to do to what doctors learn, right? You hear often that doctors don't learn anything about nutrition. Well, that's true. And it's not true. I mean, we learn a whole lot about how nutrients get converted into a human body. And we actually do learn everything that dietitians learn. Um, you know, dietitians and nutritionists, they, they learn the same principles as, as physicians do. It's just that what we learn is bogus. I mean, sorry to be like, <laughs> like um, in, inflammatory like that, but it, it's, it's wrong information that we learned. So we, we learned that like, you should basically be eating only lean meats, which wastes the entire rest mm -hmm. of an animal, which is a travesty against nature and massively disrespects the animal. Um, and we learn that, uh, you know, if, if you have whole grain flour, that's really, that should be the foundation of your diet. That's what, uh, I mean, it's insanity to, to think that taking a seed, a wheat seed and pulverizing it without doing anything to counteract all those anti-nutrients and preservatives that nature has put in that seed. They just pulverize it into a flower and, and calling that whole grain flour. Now that is what you should form as the basis of that's the foundation of your diet. That's what I learned in medical school. You should get most of your calories from whole grain flour. And yeah, you should also try to eat, you know, fruits and vegetables too. Um, with no mention of like, don't eat them canned. Um, don't like boil them to death or cook them to death. Don't let them be frozen in the freezer for too long. Cause you you lose nutrients that way. So there's so much missing from what we learn. And there's, then there's in there's an, and incorrect things, right? I already mentioned that, um, uh, the foundation of a diet being pulverized wheat flour is just absurd. Um, but also the idea that saturated fat and animal fat are unhealthy. That is a very dangerous idea. I mean, it's not only wrong, it's, it's a dangerous idea in that it has caused all of this fractioning in the nutrition world where we have people saying absolutely the opposite things. And, and to a lay person, both sides can sound completely reasonable. We have people who say that you should eat only meat and to eat any plant products is endangering your health. And then we have people on the other side saying that we should eat only plant products and to eat meat is endangering your health. And they both make plausible sounding arguments so that a lay person is just, you know, completely confused. I was confused. You know, it took me, 
uh, several years of pretty in-depth research and I had a lot of biochemistry and medical background. And I was confused when it dawned on me back in 2001, because I myself was sick, um, that my diet might not be so good. And that these, these folks who were in their 60s, 70s and 80s and who were eating radically different diets from me, they were you know, eating, they would raise their own goats and just eat every single part of that goat. Um, that their, their diet was radically different than mine. And it, at that point, it dawned on me that maybe there was something really wrong with what I had learned. Um, but it took a long time to, to figure that out. Mm. And it, it took, you know, lots of conversations with a lot of folks too, a lot of people to get a perspective of what really should people be doing. Um, Do you know, one of the things I felt that changed the conversation in Europe a lot, I don't know about in America is I remember growing up and having, um, my mum would order the whole animal, right, from the butcher, and we would have heart curries, we would have liver. I didn't like the liver. Um, and she used to say, we used to holiday in France regularly. We'd have brains in the French restaurants. You know, steak was always cooked super rare, you know, if not blue. What changed the conversation in my childhood was, I guess, two things that came out, and they had a dramatic effect. It would have been when I was around a teenager. One was mad cow's disease. Suddenly, everybody got really frightened of eating offal, and it was like, oh, no, 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 somehow, like, we mustn't ever eat offal. We must only eat muscle meat. Um, and then the other thing was the advent of this whole you know, the heart disease hypothesis that's now really being debunked and everybody was encouraged to go low fat, including my own father. So suddenly we were just in the house, everything changed. It was like, oh no, we no longer have whole fat milk. Now everything needs to be skimmed. And, um, you know, we need to eat, we need to take the skin off the meat and we need to make sure we're not having saturated fats. And all that does is, I think, is encourage people to load up on carbohydrates and sugars inadvertently maybe. Um, I don't know what it was like, you know, across the pond, but that was two of the things that really spurred it on for us and, and caused quite radical change um, because I remember it happening. We had the exact same issues just in reverse order. So for us, the first thing, because it's the American Heart Association that came up with this bogus idea that saturated fat is unhealthy. Um, that happened in America and uh, that happened in the 50s. So uh, by the 80s, um, the US government had decided that we needed to prevent food riots. And one way to do that in the face of droughts um, would be to encourage uh, eating lower on the food chain. So that's where the lower on the food chain being plants, not animals. And so that's where uh, I think it was the Nixon administration that they, they, they kind of came out with some of the first government guidelines that, um, that wheat is the, the healthy food that we should be forming the basis of, of this food pyramid. Um, we should get like four to six servings every single day of wheat products, which is, you know, about a hundred I'm sorry, around could be as much as a thousand calories, um, of basically empty calories. Um, and, and the thing that that did that very few people talk about, um, this idea that saturated fat is bad, not only did it take away the fat and yes, push us towards more carbohydrates, uh, but what it really did that's much more harmful, more important, and nobody's talking about this hardly, is it pushed us towards seed oils because the seed mm. oils were re basically replaced the fat, right? So you take away butter, still you use margarine. Um, and, and now that margarine is hydrogenated soy oil or something like that. Um, and, and that stuff's toxic. And that is also something that I talk about in both of my books, um, how it's, 
toxic to your DNA. I talk about that, how it's in deep nutrition and it has effects across generation that may be so strongly contributing to the, the whole autism, um, you know, tragedy, I think that's unfolding and, and the whole decline in childhood health where children now it's almost like normal to be intolerant to a variety of foods. You know, it's very, it's hard enough to eat a healthy diet um, in the face of all these processed foods, if you can eat all the real foods, but now children can't eat peanuts or they can't eat red meat or they can't eat dairy. I mean, it's really horrible to think of how restricted that poor child's diet is going to become. Mm. But so getting back to the, so the seed oils, this is, this is what's happened in this country is that now 80% of our, our fat calories come from soy, corn, canola, cotton seeds, sunflower, and safflower um, seed oils. It's 80% of our fat calories. And that's because they took away the saturated fat. We are eating a tiny bit more carbohydrates, but we're not really eating you know, anywhere near. So the amount of seed oils that we used to eat was zero. They weren't, they didn't exist until, um, you know, uh, the turn of the previous century. So the industrial era they cause they are industrial products. So they didn't exist. And now we're eating them to almost the exclusion of, of the animal products. Most Americans don't get any animal fat, unless it's in like the naughty foods, like ice cream or takeout pizza, where they're going to actually get dairy fat. Because in, in this country, so much of the, the hamburger meat is like 95% lean, um, skinless, boneless chicken. It's, it's hard to find dairy products that are not low fat or, or fully or completely skimmed. So this is an unknown, um, thing to most doctors, they don't even know, they don't even realize that we are eating way less saturated fat, way fewer animal products, and way more of these industrial seed oils. And the American Heart Association says that's a good thing. That's why doctors don't even think about, you know, mm. what, are, what are we even eating? But that is the moment in, in America, and now I think globally, where, um, where we, we, turned from not just getting inadequate nutrition, but to consuming toxic fat calories because the seed oils break down into extremely powerful toxins. And when you cook with them, they break down really quickly so that one meal of like a chip, this actually, this was a British study. So it was fish and chips, one meal from a restaurant might have, might exceed the estimated safe upper limit intake of some of these toxic aldehydes by a thousand times for, oh. you know, for a single wow. per day. So, I mean, it, that's, that's a whole new level of malnutrition, right? So the malnutrition that we had a hundred years ago was mostly vitamin deficiencies because people were eating refined flours and sugars. And they weren't eating like this full, the four pillars, you know, they're refined flours and sugars were replacing that. But now we are consuming toxins mm -hmm. and we're consuming toxins because the American Heart Association says to. So it's, it's a degree of insanity that takes 
um, several books <laughs> to, to <laughs> yes. really like fully describe. And, and I'm just getting started because I have at least three more books I want to write. Um, and the and these, sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm sorry, I've done too much talking. No, not at all. I, was just, I just wanted to sort of clarify for people so that they understand when they're listening. These seed oils are, as you say, they're pro-inflammatory. They contain a lot of toxins. Um, but they oxidize incredibly quickly, right? Most times, even if you're not heating them, they're already oxidized by the time they reach you anyway because of the extraction process. And I think a lot of people don't realize, the thing that changed the conversation in my own head was when I realized that your, the fats that you eat become your cells, right? They become the outer membranes of your cells. And I think people get excited about sugar and they go, yes, it can cause inflammation. Yes, it can cause problems, but to a certain degree, like if you're really, really active, right? Like an athlete, you may be burning off some of that sugar, but it doesn't matter how much activity you do, those flat fats are going to become your cells, right? And damage your body. Yes. And the other thing, Angela, that is so important in the difference between sugar and these toxic oils is that sugar, we don't store sugar in our bodies as sugar. We convert it to fat. So when we eat too much sugar and we convert it to fat, yes, we can overeat, we can put on body fat because of that, but we have all these hormones that take care of detoxifying sugar effectively. You might get a blood sugar spike that might last 30 minutes if you're healthy. It's over in 30 minutes because your fat cells have absorbed that sugar and they're busy converting it to fat, to, to monounsaturated and saturated fat, which is how we are you know, designed to store energy. That is the preferred energy for our cells. And that is a perfectly safe way to store fat. So we essentially detoxify sugar. I'm not saying, you know, I'm a fan of sugar by any means. Mm. It's empty calories. And yes, even those short 30 minute sugar spikes can have detrimental effects, but it's nothing. Maybe like 5% as bad as what seed oils do. So in terms of like, which one is better, I mean, I'm sorry, which one is worse? Which devil is the worst devil? The seed oils are clearly the worst devil. And it's, you mentioned the, um, that these fats, these polyunsaturated fatty acids, they are built into our cell membranes. They're also built into not just the outer membranes, but also the mitochondrial membrane. So the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. And we know mitochondrial dysfunction when the mitochondria can't produce energy properly is the root cause of, mm. I'm just going to name a few Alzheimer's cancer, diabetes, um, other dementias beyond Alzheimer's, like even Parkinson's, which is a neurodegenerative disease, um, fatty liver. Um, let's see what else do people come in with? Uh, migraine kind headache, of like chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue. Absolutely. Um, so that's a mitochondrial disease. And I mean, like you name it. So, so there's no disease that doesn't get worsened if not caused by these seed oils beyond like the, I mean, even, even the infectious diseases, right? So the, we have in America, we have this epidemic of Lyme disease and it's, um, so Lyme disease is uh, caused by an infection that you get um, from a bacteria when you're bitten by a tick that the tick injects that bacteria into your blood. And it's a very slow growing 
organism. And if you're healthy, you can fight it off. But if you have these seed oils in your body and you're just getting too much sugar in your diet, that is a one, two punch that knocks out your immune system. And it, it can turn a case of Lyme disease into a lifelong problem. It could have just been something that you fought off. Um, you know, maybe you were sick for a little while, maybe you had no symptoms. Um, but, but we have so many people now suffering with these lifelong consequences of, of infections of all kinds. Lyme, Lyme disease is just one example, um, that it's a whole other epidemic that is tied to primarily these seed oils because they just do so much more damage to your body. I just want to briefly interrupt today's show to tell you about a revolutionary supplement that can help you to manage your blood sugar. As you'll be learning on this podcast, when women reach the ages around perimenopause and menopause, they have a naturally more difficult time managing their blood sugar variability and can develop things like insulin resistance. And so Keon Lean is an incredible natural-based product that naturally um, basically supports your blood sugar. It uses plant-based ingredients to support your metabolism even after carb-heavy meals. It totally supports your metabolic wellness. It can assist in weight management and also help to support blood glucose levels. And it's definitely something that I take if I've kind of indulged in the odd pizza here or had just too many higher carbohydrate-containing foods. Um, It makes you feel more energized after taking it. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, And you can get a cool 15% off Keon Lean by heading over to bit.ly forward slash get my key on. So that's bit.ly forward slash get my key. Kion, which is K-I-O-N. And all you need to do is enter code Angela at checkout to get 15% off Kion Lean and also any of their other incredible supplements that they have. They use the highest quality ingredients in them. Um, they also have some amazing tasting, purity tested um, coffee. It's been mold tested. It's super pure and it actually tastes incredible. Um, so go and check out Keon. I think you're going to really, really love their supplements over there. And as I say, Keon Lean is amazing for helping you to manage blood sugar variability. So just go over to bit.ly forward slash get my key on that's K I O N and enter code Angela at checkout. Now let's get back to Jen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, when I read your book, it just it completely changed my view. Like I knew quite a bit of it, but then I realised actually these are so damaging. And I think that you know we're very careful in our house, and we do prefer animal fats. The other thing, when you mentioned at the beginning, and you were talking about you know looking at different diets and vegetarianism and and veganism and things, for me, it's very difficult to follow that diet without supplementation, and that already tells me straight off the bat that it just wouldn't have been possible ancestrally necessarily then to survive on it and not have some form of deficiencies. Whereas as you say, when we're eating organ meats and meat on the bone, collagenous cuts of meat, we're getting like vitamins that are things like vitamin A that are strong and powerful antioxidants in the body and protect our health, don't they? Um, So powerfully. And I think, um, and it's interesting as well, when I look at my own children, like the way that they eat they will naturally prefer those cuts of meat anyway because they're more tender, they taste juicier, 
they don't, you know, that, that's what they're going to go for. Um, it's so important that you give them to children because it, when you grow up with them, you actually really can crave them later on in life. If you don't grow up with them, you may not, right? You might tolerate them. That's kind of where I'm at. Um, you know, my husband recently figured out how to make liver actually pretty delicious. So maybe I'll get into that craving category soon, but, um, but it, it, you know, it's, it's, they're so full of nutrition. They're so full of um, chemical information that it's, it's almost like an overwhelming over overpowering flavor that your body just really can't process unless you grew up with it. So it's just, my sister um, is the only one in her family that actually had kids. I don't have kids myself, but she's gotten her kids to just, you know, accept these things. Cause this is how she was eating. And she, you know, she weaned them on, on uh, organ meats and all kinds of diversity. And, and they are so different now than their friends. Like they don't want cookies. They'll, they'll take like when their kids, uh, when they're sharing school lunches, um, my sister's daughter will, will take all the, like the vegetables that no one wants to eat. And, you know, so it's just, you train your children to be healthy for life when you raise them on these things. And, and that's just so important. And you had mentioned earlier before we started talking that when you were little, your mom um, got like the whole animal and you would eat things like liver. And I, I don't know if you are wearing contact lenses right now, but I would have to wear glasses. And that I, I have yet to meet somebody who grew up eating liver regularly that needed both glasses and major mouth reconstruction. Um, I had to have all my wisdom teeth pulled because there wasn't space in there. And I, I think I can remember, I can count on a single hand how many times I ate liver growing up. So, I mean, I think it's that powerful. Yeah, and you talk about it actually in the book. I was really like, really interested in about the link between like jaw alignment and um, kind of the, the way the teeth form and everything. As you say, you don't get that crowding. Um, and just the difference in terms of when you look at someone's smile and how sort of straight it is and, and how it looks, and that comes down, doesn't it, to how what the diet of the child was as they were being raised. Yes. And that means we have so much power to improve our children's lives. And uh, and so this is there's things that carry on that have affected me because I didn't get this. And not, not only did I not get them, um, you know, my mom was married to a doctor. My dad was a doctor. So we got the worst. We got the low fat. We got the margarine. We got almost no animal fat in our lives. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm over 50 and I, I had gray hair. So I say having no gray hair by 50 is a marker of you had a lot of good genetic momentum coming into it. You have good connective tissue. And I explain what that is and how that means you're going to have a long, healthier, uh, old, old age life. Um, so I started getting gray hair when I was in my twenties. Um, you know, and so that's like way <laughs> early. That's way premature. And I also talk about in deep nutrition, how, um, I knew I was headed for trouble because I had really fine wrinkling in my skin when I was in my early thirties. And that's when I wrote deep nutrition. I had some really fine wrinkling and I knew that, uh, meant a certain kind of connective tissue was, was going to collapse. So like, uh, I and you notice this where, where is this, you, you notice in your thirties that you were getting this on your face or on your body when you say fine wrinkling. Yeah. So, um, uh, you have to look at the, areas of your body that are not exposed to sun to know like really what's 
what what's you and what's sun damage. So um, the face is exposed to sun, so you can't go there. So I look, you can look at like the inner part of your arm or like if you're not, you know, a, um, a topless <laughs> sunbather, you can look at most of your chest. And, and when you squeeze it, you will just see instead of like a nice smooth baby fat kind of um, blub, bleb of like skin getting pinched, there's little teeny like little lines in there that you can see starting to form in your thirties. And that's a sign that you've lost some serious, important, um, connective tissue and, uh, called elastin. And it means that it's even more important for you to pay attention to your diet. So like, I really have to get the bone broth. I really have to stay away from sugar. I have to stay away from all the seed oils because, I can have, uh, because I'm way more on like my connective tissues are weaker. And so I'm just way more prone to, to joint pains and kinds of problems like that. So I really have to stay, you know, on the, on the, I have to walk the good nutritional line, uh, more so than a normal person. And that's a concept that we talk about in deep nutrition. Like when, uh, there's this thing called genetic momentum. So if you're parents and grandparents and so on really ate the four pillars of the human diet, then you've got better connective tissue. Your genes are expressed more properly. You've got this proper skeletal structure. Everything's working for you. And your body is so robust that you can do ridiculously abusive dietary things. Like you can, like um, James Burns, I think that was his name, George Burns. He was like a famous um, comedian in the eighties and uh, he lived to be over a hundred and he famously smoked like he, and he ate nothing. He said like literally, but back, back fat and toast or something like that. And so the back fat was a good thing, but the smoking and the toast, not so good, but yet he lived, you know, to be a hundred or something like that. And he was totally mentally sharp. And that's genetic momentum. It doesn't mean that you can, you should live off of cigarettes, toast, and back fat. It means that that's how, you know, you can abuse your body. You can get away with a lot if you have this genetic momentum and not, you know, on the other side of it, it means you can accomplish a lot. You can be an amazing athlete. And that's who we have now in uh, our sports world are, are these people who had that a little bit more of genetic momentum than the rest of us. But this is, I'm bringing this up just to talk about like to bring into the conversation things that really people are not talking about. We're arguing about angels on the head of a pin compared to how important all this stuff is that I think we should be talking about that people need in their lives in order to be able to have healthy children and, and to be healthy mm. for their whole life forward. There's, there's so much more to it than just arguing about plants versus animals. And what are your thoughts on, um, for example, like, I mean, bread in itself, when you talk about wheat, looked very, very different a long time ago. That was another thing that I noticed that happened during my childhood was this extension of shelf life in foods um, where they put these kind of esters and things. Half the things on the back, if you look at those labels, make no sense, right? I don't even understand what they are. So they are chemicals, but somehow they prolong the shelf life and they also deliver a moistness to it that wouldn't otherwise be there, right? Now, I've, I tried to dig into the research because when you look at something like a wrap, right? How does bread become a wrap without just falling apart as you fold it? Um, that, that, those seem to me, from the research I've done, to be quite damaging to gut bacteria and to my, your microbiome. 
Absolutely. Yeah. They're, because they've got like interesterified fats and basically they're turning bread into a rubbery kind of um, a rubberized form of flour that does exactly what you say. It stays, it retains like it, hydration. So it has this like sense of being moist. Um, and it, but it also retards fungal growth, which means it's toxic inherently. Um, that's why it's toxic to your microbiome. It's meant to be toxic <laughs> to microbes. So, you know, anything that has a prolonged shelf life, you need to be very suspicious of it unless it naturally, uh, unless nature would want it that way, by which I'm getting back to seeds, right? So we mm -hmm. can have beans, we can have, um, wheat berries, uh, and, uh, and they call them ancient grains, things like teff and quinoa, um, when they're whole. And then what we should do if we want to make anything out of them is, um, either grind them ourselves and immediately use that flour so that you have fresh ground flour, or ideally, um, you would, uh, sprout it a little bit. That's a lot more complicated though. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's something that the home chef can pull off is to, sprout wheat and then uh, turn that into a to bread i mean, I mean you'd, you'd have to be pretty expert at that but they do there's companies that do that in this country there's a few brands where yeah, they've sprouted the wheat mm -hmm. and it's much much more nutritious and it's a, the the <clears throat> fact that you have to buy it in the freezer um is a testament to the fact that it will mold in a few days if you leave it out on the counter so there's nutrition in there it's not going to damage your microbiome and there's a whole lot of arguments that people say that oh, wheat is inflammatory, gluten's inflammatory and, and stuff like this. But I, I don't know where you sit on that, but my thing is the whole reason we have those arguments about food that was part of our food chain um, and not, maybe not every single country consumed wheat, but most countries consumed some kind of plant seeds and, and had some kind of bread-like product. Um, the whole reason we have this confusion is because the American Heart Association has discouraged us from thinking about traditional diets simply by saying, don't eat saturated fat, because it tears you away from all traditional mm -hmm. diets yes. to do that. You can't have butter, you can't have animal products. And, and so it, it means your cookbooks that have that are useless. So you're not going to have any connection to the traditional ways of that people used to rely on to keep themselves healthy, make their family healthy and have healthy children. Cookbooks are from a hundred years ago are like these little time capsules back into how do people used to think about food? And they're so like, I think important as a resource for doctors, I mean, we, that, that is the, the, that's what we should be thinking about. That's what we should be talking about in terms of nutrition is what did people used to cook? Because that right there is a body of science that we've ignored because people mm -hmm. did do better. And if you accept the premise that of what I've been talking about, that you, uh, you know, people shouldn't be suffering from chronic aches and pains they shouldn't have gray hair by the time they're 50 wearing glasses and having to have teeth pulled or needing braces. is not part of the normal human experience. There's something gone wrong already when that's happened. And then when we have these epidemics of obesity and 
learning disorders in children and elderly folks who can't recognize their grandchildren. You know, when they're 75, they're already, they've already lost their mental faculties and need people to care for them. That's not the normal human experience. Something very wrong has happened. And for us to be ignoring the role of old fashioned cooking and just throwing that aside and saying there's nothing valuable in there and not talking about it um, is insanity because Mm -hmm. that's that's how we got here. And if we keep going this way, there's not gonna be very many people the, uh, to have this conversation because the way we're going, it's a very bad, scary trajectory of, um, you know, children, children just not having anything close to a normal life. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting. Um, uh, one, one th- question I have for you actually is when we're looking at, um, animal products and we look at dairy products, for example, like, you know, the French, they, I mean, they, they seem to eat pretty well. They ferment a lot of their cheeses. What are your thoughts? Because it seems to be getting a bit controversial now as well around should we mold cheese? And is that actually disrupting the health of our microbiome? And I'm just, and also, I guess I've got two questions. One is in relation to that. And the second is on the same topic is what about the fact that they are high in saturated fats? They are dense in calories. I know that your second book, The Fat Burn Picks, talks about how to enhance metabolism. What's your view around things like cheese and, and fermented cheeses? Absolutely. The fact that we have um, most of Europe has a strong history of cheesemaking and there are thousands of cheeses. And then if you just count dairy products that are fermented, you have to include most of Asia now. Mm. Um, So most of the world has a traditional history of consuming these things. And based on if you accept my argument of we used to be healthier, then it's dangerous to, to just assume that those are bad for us because the American Heart Association said in 1950 something that saturated fat clogs your arteries. And there was never any proof for that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a travesty of justice that the people who came up with that concept have not been brought to, um, to justice for it because they are responsible for disease. It wasn't true. It isn't true that saturated fat clogs your arteries. So I don't recommend people avoid cheese or dairy fat or animal fat, um, you know, because it's, uh, (laughs) it's dangerous to do that. And we need the nutrients in that stuff. Now, there's, I know there's a huge problem with the way we raise our animals in this country. I hope it's not so bad over in Europe just yet. I know it's getting worse, but, um, you know, we treat animals horribly. We don't feed them their natural diet. They themselves are metabolically unhealthy. Their fat is not as nutritious as it should be. It doesn't have the vitamin A and vitamin D that it should be there. It's, it's just, they're not the same animals you know, a pig raised in a CAFO um, operation is not as nutritious as the kinds of pigs that people who founded America, um, you know, who left Europe <laughs> and founded this country had when they, you know, were, were growing up and raised themselves. And, uh, and we, we have tiny little pockets of farmers who are doing it right in this country, but we need more or mm. we're all gonna be in trouble. But the idea that um, I, I like that we're paying attention to the microbiome, 
but because that's like a very, very important part of our health. Our immune system does start in our gut and the microbiome plays a huge role in that. But the people doing the research on a microbiome and right now running the conversation do not understand that seed oils are toxic to the microbiome. Mm. And people in this country are getting 80% of their fat calories, 30% of their calories from this stuff. So I mean, we've got, we've got studies showing that the, if you put people on the seed oil animals, I'm sorry, we have animal studies that show that these seed oils will radically alter your microbiome and that they will alter it in a way that promotes all of these diseases. So if you want a healthy microbiome, you get rid of the seed oils. Getting rid of the seed oils is the number one thing anyone can do for their health. And it will help every aspect of your health. If you can literally do nothing but that, you will start noticing improvements on day one, especially if you can then like add in the alternative healthy fats that you might've been afraid to eat. So you have to become unafraid. And, and that's why I've got two books already um, to help. And also just on my website for free, I, ha I have a whole expose on uh, the American Heart Association and the big lie about saturated fat and, and why I think that it's um, that organization is a criminal organiza organization because they are hurting people's health and they're doing it for profit. Mm. And what are your, um, you have got a lot of resources on your website. I definitely recommend uh, listeners go and check it out because it's a very, very enlightening and the books are amazing. Um, what about like I, a lot of people, what they're doing is now we're getting marketed to with cold pressed seed oil. So cold pressed rapeseed oil, um, for example. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, no better, really. Uh, there's actually been studies where they look into it. It's every bit as uh, capable of breaking down into toxins when you use it to cook with. And uh, I don't think people use it uh, I mean, you might use it in salad dressing, so it might be a tiny bit better in salad dressing, but really the cold pressing is only one of the 40 or so processing steps. Um, and uh, it's not truly a cold press, it's, it's, an, it's an expeller. What they mean is that it's not hexane extraction. It's not a solvent extraction process. So that's one of the 40 or so bad things that they do to seed oils that they don't do in, in this case, but they still have to refine bleach and deodorize it, which is what causes these toxins to form and strips any of the stabilizers away so that when you cook with it, it rapidly forms even more toxin. Mm, rapidly. I think it's interesting what you say about farmers as well, because I think also part of the, the trouble that's been occurring as well is the, we certainly here in Europe, we've been overtaken by large supermarket chains and they have buying powers that put tremendous pressure onto um, the farmers to meet basically cheaper standards. Whereas I found that, you know, when we, and, and, and hopefully this has been an unintended consequence of lockdowns and people going back to their local shops. Um, but what I found is, is that, you know, when you go to a good butcher or a good fishmonger who have, maybe it's been a family business that's been going 90 or 100 years, like we're lucky to, enough to have locally to us, you know, they will actually give you what's really true and they will travel. So I remember being, I was in my fishmongers this morning talking to them about prawns, for example, and which ones they had. And, you know, the, their supplier had actually visited the farms in Indonesia and turned around and said, we will, we will not supply those anymore because they're not, you know, they're not to the high standards. 
Or, for example, people will say, well, I, I want to have wild salmon, but it's not available. So then they'll look at, I must then get organic. That must be the next best thing. Whereas actually, no, then when you ask the question, this organic salmon is actually inland, farmed. Yes, they may be fed an organic diet, but they're not out in the waters, you know, like in the open locks in Shetland. And I just think there needs to be more conversation in general, right? So that people actually really, really understand a lot better, not just how their food is being kind of, obtained but also what that animal fish is being fed right mm-hmm. I, yes i mean it's it's really it should be talked about a lot as important as like a human right mm-hmm. you know we we, we sh- we're being denied our human rights when we're being denied information about what we're putting into our body this is nothing more powerfully that changes our experience of being alive when people are you know listing up the things that they're grateful for good health is usually at the top of the list. And by denying us the information that we need to maintain that good health, we are being denied something fundamentally important. And, and that's, you know, the conversation is very complex and difficult, but it's, I want to identify that the, the enemy really, I think, uh, is the doctors who are in league with the American Heart Association that have uh, decided that they don't want to do what's right for their patients. They want to do what's right for their career and go along, get along with what is currently, I'm not gonna say it's the law in this country um, that you have to, as a doctor, recommend uh, seed oils, but it's, potentially dangerous to do otherwise, because we're such a litigation happy um, society someday as some doctor is going to get sued for recommending cheese. (laughs) And, and um, the, the people who are making that doctor's life or making patients lives uh, difficult, who are ultimately, I think the bottom line are the physicians who took an oath to sustain and uphold human health and who are turning a blind eye to the fact that seed oils are toxic because they, the seed oil industries are funding their research and they just can't you know, get enough attention unless they're published and often, unless they're figureheads at these various institutions. Like we have figureheads at Harvard, Yale, Tufts, Stanford, who I'm talking about. These are the modern day um, war criminals because it is a war on on our health that's being played out by these these medicine men who are for profit telling people nutrition lies, which are the worst kind of lie. Mm, I agree with you, and I think. Do you know what I find really sad as well is that, as you say, when you look at people's gratitude lists, right, it's usually health, wealth and relationships. And when you look at like, you can go, you can lose all your money, you can go and obtain more wealth, right? Most people like graduates come out, they haven't got an abundance of wealth, they grow that over time. They find and meet people, they find their life partner, they settle down, maybe they have children, they grow their relationships. And hopefully as parents, we didn't screw them up too much along the way such that they can have those relationships. But health is the opposite, right? You are meant to be born with pristine health 
and then it's really hard to get it back. It's not something that you earn as you go through life and you just get better at. And I think that's the saddest part for me when I look at it is that we've got children even here in the UK, we're following you so fast, you know, we're hot on the heels with overweight, obese children. I think something like nearly 50% of our population is soon to be overweight or obese. That's half. Like, how has this happened and how have we allowed it to happen? I find that I, it's real sadness for me because now we see people with so many diseases, as you say, and it's very uncommon to meet someone who says they don't take any medication at all. Yeah, um, it is. Even children, you know, mm-hmm. they, they often take, um, in this country anyway, asthma, um, asthma or allergy medications, at least part of the year. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very true. Um, so looking then at... Um, the fat burn side of things, yeah. Now, I'm presuming that there's a big link here because, well, not presuming, I know there is from your work. So those pro-inflammatory fats that people are eating are also gonna cause high levels of inflammation in your body, and it's gonna be very hard to lose weight. But I know you've done a ton of research and have a book all about how to, to, to get leaner and get a better body composition. What are some of the kind of principles that people need to think about there? Because everyone's kind of battling the bulge. Absolutely. So what I do with the fat burn fix is I, I take a radically different approach to, um, to a weight loss book. Um, so deep nutrition was, will help you be healthy and that will help you lose weight. But the goal of the fat burn fix is to help folks who want to lose weight, but not everybody's metabolism is functional, right? So because of the, the uh, what I talk about in deep nutrition is I explain how the seed oils build up in your body fat and that process radically alters the function of your metabolism. And that means that different people are in different stages of metabolic uh, demise, really, where the the beginning of it is you are healthy, you can burn your body fat, you naturally regulate your weight because if you overeat one day, you have an excessive energy the next and your appetite is naturally suppressed. So that's health. And then on the other end of the spectrum is a type two diabetic who um, uh, has uh, blood sugar levels that are in the 200s fasting. Um, that is the most damaged um, metabolism that can still live basically. And um, there's, there's not, you can't expect people on these two extremes, let's say somebody's pretty healthy. They just, uh, you know, went, got depressed and went on an, e- an eating binge or something. They gained 20 pounds, but otherwise they're pretty healthy. They went to lose weight. And then now they have this type two diabetes, your ability to burn your body fat and your ability to lose weight and your ability to respond to hormones and every other thing, complex thing that has to happen for you to lose weight and keep it off, not just lose weight on a crash diet, which any, any you know, any crash diet or starvation will do that. Um, your ability to lose weight and keep it off is going to be radically different. So it's a spectrum. And what the fat burn fix does is it first tells you where you sit on that spectrum, because I have a quiz in there that you take and you assess the health of, uh, I've broken up your fat, your metabolism into four systems. Um, so I call them the four fat burn systems. And so I assess the health of all of those and give you a number. And then depending on that number, you're either ready to cut calories and lose weight or not. 
and the tiny minority of people are really ready to cut calories and lose weight right off the bat. So this is the diet book that says, hold on, you're not ready to diet. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on getting your metabolism healthy enough. So where you're not hungry. And, and a lot of folks are, um, who, who have read this book, who don't need to lose weight, but they're just doing it because they're kind of a fan of other things that I've put together. It's a little confusing for them because they're not, um, they're not like understanding that I need to, people to be, have their hunger under control. Um, because when people are overweight, they usually have a kind of hunger that's very different than people who've never had a weight problem. And, and so I describe that different kind of hunger too. So there's a lot of new concepts in there. Um, there's like a healthy hunger versus a, a, a desperate hunger, uh, which is what's behind hangry. Um, and I want you to get that desperate hunger under control, totally under control, under control before you focus on cutting calories and losing weight. And because if you're already hungry on whatever number of calories you're consuming, how are you going to consume less and sustain that? Because you're going to be hungry more often, mm. right? And is so, that tummy rumbling hungry or is that I feel like something, I just like feel like I need to have something? So those are two of three. <laughs> so there's three uh, different kinds of hunger. So one is the tummy grumbling, which is simply the circadian clock. If you always have a snack at 10 in the morning, your stomach is getting ready for you. It's going to give you that little grumbly signal. It, 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 so it's just a circadian. You've trained your stomach. Um, that's something that um, I, I teach you how to out, out train that, but that's, that's um, that you have to know these different kinds of hunger. And the other kind is a true hunger. Like I could eat anything, you know, like not that kind of, I'm staying in front of the fridge. I feel like I need something, but there's nothing in here that appeals to me. It's not that it's, mm. um, you know, if the, if all I had to eat was a raw snake, I might start thinking about it, you know? Mm. Um, so that's true hunger where you can eat actually healthy. You're craving nutrition there. Um, and then the, the most common though, kind of hunger that people who have weight issues have is, um, hypoglycemia. Actually, that's their body is, uh, is not getting energy. So, um, we've got this term in medicine called hypoglycemia, which refers to, oh, it's just your blood sugar slow. You need to eat something that's wrongheaded thinking. Um, it's not that your blood sugar is low. It's that your body needs energy and, uh, you're going to be cranky or have brain fog or trouble concentrating. Um, you're not going to be yourself until you get some calories. And that is dangerous hunger. And that's what I need people to be free of before they're ready to start cutting calories and losing weight. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And what about like, um, so some people we find will, and they'll say this, that they'll say it from, even within the same family, yeah, they'll say it from very um, early on in childhood that, and you can look at body types, yeah, some people are different. Do some people just have a naturally easier time of staying lean and healthy and eating more? Or is it that actually, no, they are... In their body is imbalanced, the hormonal balance is right, the triggers are right, what they're putting in, inflammation is low. What do you think about that? Or do you think there are fundamental differences? Because I know when people say, oh, I only have to look at a cookie and I'm gonna put on weight, often those people are actually eating, or have historically eaten quite a lot of those foods. 
what do you think, like genetically from birth? Are we different? Are our metabolisms different in the way that we consume and burn energy? They're absolutely different, but it's in response to how did the seed oils damage your metabolism? So there's two different pathways. So one is in defense of not having to burn these toxic things for energy, people gain weight. It's in defense of that. And the other is um, not in defense of that. So they, so that people who uh, gain weight are actually protecting their mitochondria. And what I see is a pattern, um, and this is just my observation, uh, but it's starting to be supported by some scientific research, is that there's a difference in the way people, uh, in people's fundamental difference in the metabolism between people who have a tendency to put on weight and get diabetic and people who maintain a normal weight on the same high seed oil diet, where the people who maintain that normal weight, they are much more prone to getting, autoimmune disorders um, and uh, degenerative uh, disorders because they're not protecting, their mitochondria are are being damaged and damaging the cells, uh, whereas those people who have this tendency to store those dangerous seed oils in their body fat and burn sugar instead, they develop diabetes but they are saving their cells uh, from having to burn that toxic stuff that's in their body fat. Okay. Okay. So that really is, then you can be like thin and unhealthy basically. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. I mean, so that's a huge part of uh, what uh, I mean, I don't, I mean to say like, Oh my goodness, you should know that. I mean, like that is a very important concept because we are right now in this mindset of gauging someone's health by their weight. And, mm. um, and that's just absolutely not true. And that's why I opened the fat burn fix with talking about one of the Lakers who I worked with, who was 8% body fat, but extremely metabolically unhealthy. Okay. Interesting. Um, so what would, um, let's look at then when you look at somebody who's healthy, you mentioned like, if you can get to 50 and you don't have any gray hairs, that would be indicative that you're doing pretty well. I want to talk to you about that a bit more. But also, um, you mentioned, uh, I think I saw you mentioned on your website, if you get to 50 and your fertility is still good, that was quite interesting to me because I've always had this question mark and I haven't been able to find a lot of information about it of, does the age that a woman enters menopause, is that indicator of how fast she's aging as well? Um, Yeah, because your ovaries in particular, right, are full of, they're very mitochondria rich. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm curious on this, like your, your views really on it. Yeah. So that's a very big question actually, but, um, the, uh, the short answer is, um, you know, you're affected by what your parents ate, what you got growing up that kind of set somewhat of the, um, genetic reserve or the ovarian reserve that you might have. Um, and then you're affected by your metabolism. In other words, that part's reversible. So, um, you know, like, let's say everything was ideal, but you, uh, what you, you know, you have a metabolic problem, right? Let's say that your parents ate healthy, you ate healthy growing up, but for 20 years, you've been eating seed oils and, um, and now you're a little overweight, like the typical, um, person who believes that they're supposed to like women is inevitably, we're going to gain 10 pounds for every decade over 30. I think, um, that's the statistic in this country, or maybe it's every decade over 20 now, but, um, 
that weight gain is inevitable and, um, you know, menopause is supposed to be difficult and painful. Um, but that's, I think a lot of that is metabolic. Um, and you can really alleviate a lot of suffering by, um, improving your metabolic health. Absolutely. But you, your ovarian reserve, um, you know, it can be kind of brought back to life a little bit. Uh, there's, there are people who thought that they were infertile or thought that they were in menopause and they started having periods again, or they were able to conceive a child uh, when they went on a, uh, a, you know, a radical diet change and became radically healthy compared to the kind of diet that they had been eating. Um, so you can definitely wake things up again, but it, it's, different in everybody because people come into the world with a little bit of a different genetic momentum there. Yeah, so this is kind of like the epigenetic tags, is it, that you get from your parents? Um, yeah, that's interesting. And so let's take somebody who is listening to this and, and they, they read your books and they want to now get their health back on track. Um, how long do you find in your experience with someone who has been eating a lot of seed oils um, does have some metabolic dysfunction that it can take to sort of quell that inflammation and really get them back on track? It depends where they are. So like if they're that type two diabetic, it's going to take a lot longer. Um, they're going to start feeling better from day one, but, um, they need a lot of, uh, proper, they need to follow the proper sequence of events. And that's, that's really what the whole function of the book is about is like, how, what is the best way for you to lose weight and get your metabolism back on track? Because, because if you're not ready to, you know, cut calories just yet, what can you do? What are you, what are you doing to get healthy? What's, what are you actually accomplishing uh, by following a diet? I mean, a lot of people end up losing weight because one of the first things I tell people to do is stop snacking and I empower them to stop snacking by uh, taking away that desperate hunger that they might get at four in the afternoon. Um, but um, so I'm sorry that you're asking like, how long is it going to take? Yeah. So it's really fundamentally dependent on on where they're at. And so like, I, I have a, this calculator that helps you figure out your fat burn factor. And if it's a hundred, then you're, uh, optimally me metabolically healthy. If it's zero, uh, you're in serious trouble and, um, and it's going to take longer, but it's more important for you because, uh, you know, the lower your number, the, the more you are close to, you know, organ failure and, and some of the really bad things that happen with type two diabetes. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, in my twenties was diagnosed with PCOS and insulin resistance and prescribed metformin. I never had any kind of weight problems, but that was really, I was a practicing lawyer at that point. That was my first foray into nutrition and trying to figure out, well, I know I've got a family history of diabetes, but this seems awfully young, like what's going on? Um, and I radically changed my diet at that point. Um, and actually, you know, yes, I had some surgery initially, but it enabled me to have my three kids completely naturally. And the PCOS never came back, um, which is, it just shows you, doesn't it, the power of nutrition. Yes. I mean, you're a perfect example. So uh, because you had this, what you told me so far was that 
you had, um, you know, when you were growing up, your mom did a lot of the right things by getting you the organ meats. Um, and, and then probably because you went to law school, you couldn't really focus on diet. And, you know, I know a lot of lawyers are run ragged, uh, <laughs> so they don't get to, you know, you have to do a lot of takeout and you're not really in control anymore of what you eat you're not getting good stuff. So, so you probably had went from like a pretty darn, had good genetic momentum, a pretty good, healthy metabolism going into it. And then your body was really protecting your children. I mean, we should be grateful for this kind of PCOS that's reversible, right? Because you weren't conceiving a child when your body was nowhere near ready to grow a healthy child. It was protecting you and, and your child um, because you're more likely to have uh, eclampsia and difficult pregnancy and early pregnancy and placenta previa and things that kill you um, as a mother. I mean, the risk is lower now that we have all these surgical interventions, but a uh, hundred years ago, uh, it, it was, you know, childbirth was a serious thing and we could, parents didn't always, moms didn't always make it. Um, but we have all these interventions now to make up for the fact that uh, we can still have a bad diet, we can still have pelvic problems and still have children. Maybe we should be doing something about that. But in your case, you were able to basically um, correct what was pri probably mostly just metabolic and not epigenetic issues. Mm -hmm. I think it was metabolic and I think actually although my mum started out that started well because of the changes and what was coming over to the UK from the US and my father was misdiagnosed with a, a heart condition we suddenly were all put on a low-fat diet and sure enough he became diabetic um, and I ended up with PCOS so suddenly we were having way higher sugar and we were having margarine not butter all our milk was changed to skin and that you know as a teenager my diet changed radically um, almost overnight, right? We just changed what we were eating in response to doctor's advice, which is what you're saying. And look at the, the damaging effects that, that came about basically. Yes, right, absolutely. But, um, you know, I mean, I hope your children are, are super healthy and it sounds like you're raising them on amazingly healthy things. So uh, I'm sure that that's, that your story will have a continue, your story will continue, I guess, right? <laughs> in a happy way. That's just fantastic. Yeah, but it does show you, doesn't it? You can reverse many of these things. Um, so what are the, uh, what's the foundations then just to close for somebody who wants to eat um, healthily in terms of getting, we talked obviously extensively about PUFAs and, and avoiding those, but also you talk a little bit about protein being a Goldilocks food. Um, what is the, how can people sort of design their nutrition? So I, th I think you advocate quite a high fat percentage diet. What's, what's the, what's the, what's a day in the life of the ideal diet? If you like? Right. So the, the high fat diet that I advocate for in the fat burn fix, um, is for, it's very similar to a keto diet, but it's only if you, it's optional and it's not necessary. Um, if you don't feel like you're having problems with hunger problems with snacking, and the carbohydrates that you get are what I call the slow digesting carbohydrates, which tend to be nutrient rich mixed with protein themselves. Um, then you don't need to be ridiculous. You know, I would say, I would say ridiculously high fat. I have a fairly ridiculously high fat diet. Like I probably get about 70% of my calories from fat just because those are the foods I like. But if I really liked quinoa, I would eat it more. If I really liked beans, I would eat them more. Um, but, uh, in terms of, um, th so the goal is to be able to get enough nutrition and to avoid the toxic seed oils. 
nutrition includes enough protein and enough healthy fat. When you're trying to re repair your metabolism, you really need to get a lot of healthy fat. And so I, I, I advocate for using a, a keto diet in a specific way. I don't say everybody needs to follow a keto diet forever. And I don't even say you need to follow a keto diet. So a keto diet is basically a very high fat diet where you're getting somewhere around 70, 80% of your calories from fat and maybe uh, 15 to 20 from protein and perhaps five to 10, if that from carbohydrate. So there's, there's a reason to do that. And I explain what that is in, in, in the book, but it has to do with, you know, if you have a lot of hormonal issues, then that may be able to really accelerate the recovery, but um, we don't actually have any studies on, um, on using this, a higher carbohydrate form of a diet than a keto diet or the Atkins diet, where the carbohydrates are exclusively these slower digesting carbohydrates. So we don't have any data. Well, we do have a lot of data that the keto diet is really great for reversing PCOS and for reversing insulin resistance. Um, we don't have any data that the kind of diet that I'm recommending is any worse at that, <laughs> you know? And it's easier for a lot of people to follow because a lot of people, they're not really ready to give up bread. And so I, I just tell you, you have this kind of bread instead. They're not really ready to give up wraps and stuff. So I say, please have this kind of wrap instead. And, and they like their vegetables, um, you know, they like their nuts. And, and so if you really are strict on a keto diet, you almost eat no vegetables except for maybe lettuce and a, and a few very high fat nuts and stuff like that. And um, that's great if you can do it and you enjoy it. And, and I tend to do that a lot, but I don't think it's necessary for everyone to do that. And I think for people to, <clears throat> to for a diet to be sustainable, you have to start out on the right foot. I don't want people to start out where it's like, I can do this, I think for a little while, I want it to feel easy. And so I go to great pains to try to help people to make it easy. And, and that's why I do things like assess where people are. And then I say, okay, if you're here, if your score is this, start with this phase and stay here as long as you need before your hunger goes away. And if you're happy with the results, I have three phases. Um, and if you're happy with the results that you're getting from the first phase, you never need to go to the other phases because that phase is designed to be sustainable for life. All of them are, except maybe the, the keto diet, because a lot of people don't just like that for, uh, for long-term, mm -hmm. they do start to feel a little deprived. Um, and there's no reason like not to have the occasional pizza and you know, if it's healthy, just enjoy yourself, but just realize that you have to be in control. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. And that's all in the fat burn fix, the assessment. Yes. Perfect. So I will link to deep nutrition and the fat burn fix and your website um, in the show notes. Um, but before you go, please share like where, um, share your website domain and where people can find you. Where do you spend most of your time in terms of social media? Um, just so listeners can kind of look you up and, and follow your work. Yeah. So thanks, Angela. So I'm, my website is drkate.com. So it's Kate with a C and it's Dr. Just D-R, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And um, I am on Facebook and Twitter more often than Instagram just because my phone is too old um, <laughs> right now. <laughs> but my Facebook and, and uh, Twitter uh, links are, are right there on my website. Um, so that's kind of a good place to get started is the website. Yes, and there's lots of good information there about a lot of stuff that we talked about today. There's more detail available just right there for free. 
Amazing. Yeah, there's a ton of information on your website. So I will link to all of that in the show notes. Um, I'm just looking at myself here and it clearly is getting a lot darker while we've been recording this conversation. You've got, I didn't have the lights on before and it started quite light. And uh, you've got lovely, it looks like sunshine behind you, but here in the UK, we're kind of getting to dusk. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so lovely to speak to you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Angela. Thanks. um uh, for putting it, putting it out there, what you're doing is, is very, very important. So thank you. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. As always, everything will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast, together with the show notes and the links and everything else that we talked about. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please take a screenshot and post it on your story on Instagram and tag me at Angela S. Foster. I just love to hear from you and connect with my listeners. And it's a great way for us to do that and make that connection. So just take a screenshot of what you're listening to, post it on your story and tag me Angela S. Foster on Instagram. That's it for this week and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.